Hi, welcome to the Book Lovers Podcast. I'm Joseph Henderson, the media specialist for Spartanburg County Public Libraries. And I'm Carmenita Turner, the media collection development librarian. And I'm Jess Herzog, the director of adult services. Today we're discussing Lot, the award-winning short story collection by Brian Washington, and Sports as Hell, the graphic novella by widely lauded writer and artist Ben Passmore. Both books take place in urban areas, Houston and Philadelphia, and delve into the relationships that the city's residents have with both each other and the cities themselves. Let's get started. start out by talking about Lot by Brian Washington, um, which just won uh, the Lambda Award for Gay Fiction. Was that was that earlier this month? Time is really funny. Um, I believe or it was last a month. couple of months yeah, ago. Yeah, a couple of months yeah. ago. Anyway. It was pretty recent. Um, and it's a, it's a wonderful collection of, of stories that uh, where each story derives from uh, the sort of informal name of a neighborhood in Houston, um, with the exception of a couple that are actually official neighborhood names. And a couple of the stories uh, follow a single follow a single narrator uh, and his family, Nick Nicholas, um, whose name is finally revealed in the in the last story um, in a really interesting way in a sort of intimate moment. I don't think it's revealed before that. Um, I don't recall it being revealed yet. I don't think it's revealed before that. No, it's not. And and in a way. I don't know, Carmenita. We were we were talking about this uh, uh, before we started recording, uh, where you were almost describing it as a uh, as a, a novella um, extended over a series of stories, but other characters are are drawn in. And I I don't know. I've been thinking about that that description, and it feels it seems really right to me. Yeah. So every other story follows one family. And then all of the stories are interconnected, but there's this one thread through the whole novel, or the whole collection, rather, of this one family and the different snapshots of their life, all tied to the main character, Nick. Mm-hmm. Um, Jess, what did you think about this book? Oh, I loved it. Yeah. I thought it was great. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I really enjoyed it as well. In, in At least initially, I was thinking that it... It reminded me somewhat, you know, Diaz, and it reminded me a little bit of his collection, This Is How You Lose Her, in the way that um, that collection is uh, sort of anchored in the in a single character perspective, Junior, although some of those stories approach perspective in different ways where he figures in, but he's not central. And, and so that sort of anchoring device of including Nick here felt, felt very similar. And it definitely... This is how you lose her is very much like an urban set of stories, as is um, the brief wondrous life of Oscar Wow, which is also written by Yuno Diaz, and so they're both they both give that same sense of place of being in an urban area that you might not necessarily get if you were reading them taking place in Cowpens, for example, or something like that. There's a 
there's a huge sense of place, I think, in Lot, especially, that really anchors it. And you don't know that it could necessarily take place. It probably could take place in certain other urban areas, but it couldn't take place in, like, a suburban area because of the communities that are there. It's a really special form of storytelling to be able to make a non-human or even a non-living entity just as important to the story as the human characters. And in this, the city of Houston and all of the neighborhoods become their own characters that impact the story and are impacted by the story. Absolutely. Yeah, there's definite personality. Like, you look at the difference between a leaf and specifically that's I think the second story in the book and you get a real idea very quickly in a not very long story of what this neighborhood is about because it's almost told from the perspective of we the neighborhood as opposed to any individual person yeah and in each in each story you also uh in in different ways you also get a sense you get a sense of the history and the a sense of for lack of a better phrase, the um, the way that each each place is sort of functioning in transition, um, and some stories this uh, in some stories this is more dramatic and pronounced than others. I'm thinking in particular of um, of the last story in the collection, Elgin, which in in many ways feels like a story about a place that is in the process of being gentrified and and sort of the the function of that and feeling of that as as Nick and other characters are kind of trying to make sense of their make sense of their relationships with others in uh, with respect to that there's a line in that story that really struck with me that goes right along with that idea and it was she left me in Houston with the house and its new silence yeah. And that's just the perfect line for the transitionary period of Houston right after Hurricane Harvey and the way the character is feeling in a very transitionary point in his life, too. And then all of these things just impacting each other. Yeah, there's another great line from that story, too, that to paraphrase it, because I listened to the audiobook and I didn't take notes, which I should have like a dummy. Why would I do that? But there's a great line where it's like the new gringos across the street and they were nice and they always waved. And at one point, Nick goes and ends up like kind of kicking the ball back and forth with the child that lives there. And he says, but at some point I had to stop because there's only so much of that you can take, which is really drives home in the same way that the new silence of the house does, that things are changing and there isn't, he doesn't know if there's a place for him there Mm -hmm. anymore. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I thought that um, I thought that the way that Washington handled the the sort of lived reality of of race in in the book was really interesting, um, and some of that some of that I thought, uh, at least with respect to whiteness, um, was was particularly particularly interesting because we would have we we had like multiple different terms um, for white people in in the text and it sort of depended on the level of intimacy and the sort of like social position um to how um black or uh latinx characters um were were responding to them um so one example i was thinking about is in the context of 
um, of the restaurant um, and white patrons being described as Blancas, right? Blancas, Blancos. Um, but then in the case of, say, uh, Nick and his, his various romantic or sexual partners, they might be described as white boy, but like one word, white boy. And that, that like sort of creation of a, of a separate, of a sort of separate ad hoc language, I thought was really, it was really striking. And it was interesting because, because it makes, again, it makes that like white as general standard unspoken reality actually particular and distinct and, um, and noted in a way that's important, I think. There are many kinds of white, you know, we need to stop thinking that it's just like the one pillar of whiteness. It's like what, salt, really? Like, <laughs> no, there's, there's many different ways to describe us. And it, it also kind of denotes in a way the grasp that Brian Washington has or the understanding that he has of the Latinx community because, you know, in Spanish, there are the two different ways to refer to you because there's usted, which is formal, and then there's two, which is informal. So it stands to reason that that concept of having both a formal and less formal or casual way of referring to someone directly would expand out into the way that people are referred to by their identities, right? It wouldn't just be the one thing. It's multiple things. It can be many different things. Yeah, that's a really interesting point um, that I hadn't considered in terms of the in terms of the sort of linguistic function yeah. of that of the formal and the familiar. Um, but that, that's I think that's definitely one of the ways that that one of the ways that those markings um, caters function in the text. Yeah, I agree because when the white characters are just a monolith right. of the white characters in this context, it's just that very formal, distant kind of way. But then in stories like the nav- story navigation is when he's teaching his white boy Spanish. Yeah. And he said he calls him my white boy or the white boy. And that's a very more, much more personalized kind of interaction and term that is just about their relationship and as it changes and becomes very intimate and then more distant. And as their relationship becomes more distant, the term that he uses becomes a little bit more distant too. Yeah. And that's... That's such a it's such a great way to to denote identity and in this in this version of storytelling, I guess that's it really kind of drives home specifically the linguistics of a community, but also maybe the linguistics of Houston in particular, and not just race wise, but people who live in Houston who speak this way. It just it feels like there's definite. I mean, Brian Washington, I believe, lives in Houston, so it's clear that he's got a grasp of that. So it just comes across as more sense of place and more, more of Houston almost in that in showing that type of language and that type of personality to it actually builds on the personality of the city itself, which is a character of the book. Yeah, it's a really interesting. It's a really interesting insight because there's a way in which th- there's a way in which you could look at Washington's approach and his his way of revealing place and sort of anchoring us in place, both 
through including particular details and naming the stories after particular locales, but also through that uh, almost like anthropological insight that, you know, language creates your reality and, and in certain contexts that reality gets managed in, in one level or another because of power relations, class relations, whatever, you know, whether this is a workplace or whether this is the bedroom. And, and so, so there's, there's a great way in which even without necessarily explaining those distinctions, we feel as readers invited in. Um, and we feel, we feel like we're, we're granted a kind of access um, that we might not otherwise, we might not otherwise have, you know, if we were to just go to Houston and try to get our bearings as, you know, could you uh, imagine <laughs> the three of us with our little cowboy hats, like, yeah. pulling into Houston <laughs> and our... seeing like, I don't know, the statues that are there and having barbecue, we would have no idea what the community sure. was actually about. Yeah. Yeah. So there's this, so there's this really amazing way in which it's, it's written from this interior, this like interior perspective, um, uh, that never, that never, I don't think feels alienating. Instead, it feels incredibly welcoming, and um, and and we we get a sense of of this um, of these communities and this world that we might not otherwise know. Yeah, it's very much portrayed in Lot as not. You know, I've read some books that are take place in certain places that are just this is it. Deal with it. Others that say this is not space for you, this is space for us. And with Lot, it really does feel like this is our space, but we want you to understand it. We want you to, to see it and see it for its beauty and for how it functions and not necessarily as anything different. And so often with stories, when we're reading them, it's sort of watching a movie where we're just watching all of this happen. Whereas with these stories, with all of them, you're a part of it. Like, you're in the neighborhood. You live there. You're a part of this story. You're part of the we. Yeah, yeah. You are part of the collective we of we in this neighborhood saw this thing happen. You're a part of that. You're not just watching it. You're not just a visitor or an observer. You're actively living there with mm. everybody else. Yeah, and if I recall correctly, I think every story is told in first person, either singular or plural, or at least the, ma the vast majority of them are. So it really that does a lot to anchor you and make you feel like you're actually living through this like the other characters are instead of watching it from on high on your cloud floating over Houston yes, and seeing right. what happens. Yeah. So, so that, that does the, the, that sort of perspectival shift in that, that aspect of narrative structure absolutely does that. It grounds you in that way. I think one of the other things that grounds you in this way that I don't know, I don't know how this necessarily comes across in the audio version, but in the text, dialogue is treated, dialogue is not treated as separate from narrative where uh, characters are being quoted as, as saying something, but instead it's, I said, she said, he said, whatever. And then there is the, then there is the text that follows. And so there's not that like, there's not that distancing effect that happens in other 
types of prose. That makes it so conversational. Like Carmenita said this and then I said that. And then she said, uh, you know, it feels very much more like it's flowing, like the story's being told to you as just another member of the community, as opposed again to being like a listener, like you're listening in on something else. It's another way of bringing you in. Yeah, exactly. So there's, so to go back to my like anthropological metaphor in a way, however useful it is, here we're here we're in a sort of deep, deep cultural situation, right? Um, uh, as opposed to as, as opposed to the the observers. I don't know. I keep looking at our like portable recorder, and I'm imagining your scenario with our cowboy hats on as we're like going around and saying, you know, <laughs> how are you, fellow Houstonite? Uh, what not. do you have to say about your experience living here, and how particular <laughs> that is? <laughs> I would like to say for anyone listening at home, we are not currently wearing cowboy hats. It's actually a shame. Yeah, it's a bummer. It is a shame. Yeah. We should have oh, coordinated well. our outfits a little better. But oh, yeah, well. it's very much like that, hey there fellow kids kind of thing, like trying to trying to make a thing work, but right, you're, you're right. clearly an outsider. It would yeah. be like me showing up in North Korea being like, hey, tell me all about your life and your... <laughs> your things that are here because it it would be clearly seen as right. kind of a falsehood or a false effort. Whereas the, the approach in the text instead is here you are, you're, you're in this, you're, you're, you're hearing this thing that is being told to you. One of the words that one of the sort of distinguishing words that I felt like I, I felt like I kept coming back to as I was reading through these stories as a sort of distinguishing quality, really that just names exactly what we're talking about is intimacy and and some of that is is revealed in like explicitly intimate moments like during sex after sex etc um but but also in the sort of that tender space of people telling each other stories and um and sort of describing aspects of their relationships i'm thinking in particular about uh the penultimate story in the collection here um how would you say that wa yeah wa wa um it, it's similar or spelled the same way as the last name of evelyn wa the yeah, brideshead yeah. revisited author this is one of my favorite stories in the in the collection i think um because of the I don't know the levels in it um, and the, the, the sort of the tension and the different relationships between Poke. Would you say his name Poke or Poke? Yeah, it's Poke. It's Poke. Yeah. Between. It's a good thing we listened to the audio book because okay, we can. Good. Yeah. You can <laughs> correct can me. Because <laughs> we can correct you. We can correct you about the pronunciation and you can about correct yeah. us about the spelling. Perfect. I'll take it. I'll take it. Because I always write P-O-K question mark. Yeah. Relationship between Poke and Rod and Emil, 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 Emil. I think it's a mill. A mill. Okay, that yeah. makes more sense. Um, I don't know. I just really like the story. And um, midway through, Emil tells the story about he tells Poke the story about how he came to be in Houston and the violence that his family barely survived um, trying to get there. And there's a 
there's a lesson in that because Poke is trying to intervene for Rod, who is HIV positive. Um, and and there's a lesson in there about trying to help other people, but recognizing that for for many people, there's only so much you can do. And there's only so much help that people will accept. Um, and, and it's, it's just this like beautiful, beautiful story of sort of lessons learned and, and trying to be there for others, but also not necessarily succeeding. This story in particular is so incredible to me because it's such a learning moment for people in helping professions like us. (laughs) We are helpers. It's what we do. One of my best friends just like emailed me and said, will you do a video because you're in a helping profession? And I thought I was like, never really thought of it that way, but I guess that's what we do. We are helpers, but it's important for us and everyone in a helping profession to be aware of the limitations of what help we can provide. And this is a this story is such a great way to learn from that without feeling like your profession's being attacked in some way when people are like, I don't want the library. The library is a waste of my time. You're offended because it says your help is a waste of my time, right? But Rod and Emil and Poke, their their relationships and the way that they the ways they try to help each other and both fail and succeed is a good way to learn that there's just a human limitation to how much help can be provided, but also how much help can be accepted for whatever reason. And it's a good um, lesson in saviorship. Yeah. Because so much of Poke is like, we have to tell them, we have to do this. This is what's best for everybody. I know what's best. And Rod is saying, they don't need to know right now. This is not what's best for them. This is what you want to do. And Poke was thinking so much about Rod's HIV status as how it impacted Polk's life and not thinking so much about how it impacted Rod's life. And when you approach helping someone from, this is how your problem impacts me, so this is how I'm going to solve your problem. Uh It takes it away from the person facing the problem. And Rod is basically saying, you don't actually care about the fact that I have HIV. You only care about how that impacts you. Yeah. You want to slap some pain on it and call it a day, basically, which is how this country has gotten into a lot of its own problems (laughs) is by saying, I know how to fix your problems as, for example, as a white person speaking to the black community. I can fix your problems. Let me do it my way when you haven't even asked the community what they want and need. And there's a lot of that in in Wa as a short story. And that's another lesson that has to be learned kind of over and over again. And that Poke will probably have to respond to and consider for the rest of his life. Yeah, so there's a way there's a way in which that story almost as a it, it functions almost as like a maybe a microcosm for for the collection as a whole in that in that sort of move towards a certain kind of towards a certain kind of intimacy but an intimacy that allows for i think fairly frank and clear conversations and revelations to say okay you you have been drawn in this is an opportunity to learn right and this is an opportunity for for a kind of clarity 
not every not every story in the collection is maybe as grave as that or like has quite as high of stakes as as that one does um but but i wonder if that's a i wonder if that's a useful way of of thinking about at least one of the things that the book one of the things that the book is doing alongside the you know again giving us that sense of place like giving us this feeling of a kind of conversational conversational inclusion i think it does because when you're what just when you're just watching a story unfold once the story is over you're like okay close this book i'm done this story i just watched it good story whatever but when you're invited to be a part of the story then you also grow alongside the characters you're given that opportunity to learn alongside the characters to fail alongside them and to grow beside them as opposed to just watching other people do this you're invited for all of this to happen to you too it's a difference between a, being a participant and being an observer right yeah right Carmenia, did you have a favorite story in the collection? Um, let me look back through my notes because I'm a bit okay. of a reading nerd. Also, I have a very bad memory. <laughs> That's okay. So it's I good to take do notes. Write things yeah. down. Notes are good because yours, Joseph, is wah. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. I think so. I'm curious to see if any of us have the same favorite story you know with a short story collection it's very unlikely that you'll ever have multiple people who say this one is their favorite I really liked Elise I think that's the second story because um there's so many things which you know Spartanburg is technically a city but Spartanburg as a whole is a very small town and especially when you break down the towns and villages that make up the county so sometimes I think that as someone who has lived in these small towns for your whole life, it can be a little bit difficult to connect with really in, with stories that take place in major cities. But Elif, there's just the, just the fact that Elif takes place in an apartment building. That's sort of the basic story and the basic background. And it is the whole apartment complex speaks as this collective we as they watch this relationship sort of develop and then fall apart, and then crash and burn. But also we need to say that we, the collective of the apartment complex, which is a microcosm of society unto itself, like they're fascinating places. I've never lived in one, but it's just incredible to me how some of them operate. But the we that's involved in this story is the reason that this relationship crashes and burns. (laughs) (laughs) Because this relationship is actually an affair. And the we decides to take matters into their own hands and announces that this affair is going on. It's um, the line about how they announced the affair to the husband was, we spoke as one, a single cry, and then another. And it's just, it was so, it was funny and tragic, and it was just a way of watching gossip unfold in any tiny town. Yes, and I live, And I've lived in a village of about 300 people for my whole life. So reading a leaf was just like hearing stories of things that happened in my neighborhood growing up. And even now, I'll run into someone and they'll say, you won't believe what so-and-so did. And I'm like, oh, tell me. (laughs) Please. And that's one of the, I think, one of the great things about this book is that even if you haven't lived in a large city like this or any sort of urban place, there's still some relatable stuff that happens because there is gossip everywhere you go. Someone's always talking about someone else and what they did (laughs) 
for and no even if they don't reason. always have it because we have it in small towns and villages in Spartanburg but they don't necessarily have it in apartment complexes in major cities there's always the type of person that is the old woman sitting on the front porch watching everything mm-hmm. happen she knows everything yes. that happened and she'll only tell the people she likes yep. yeah and then it ends up trickling out to the rest of the community and who knows how it's been spun yes. by the time it reaches you and then we have sort of the unreliable narrator where you're hearing all this gossip that's happened and you're trying to figure out okay what actually happened and what just became kind of chaotic and I just really love how it's a story that the setting is so important but it can also be set to so many different places it's not just for people living in apartment complexes. yeah yeah regardless of your experience uh, regardless of your experience or your own particular place there's there's some aspect of this sort of gossipy shared intelligence shared narrative that you're going to connect to no matter where you live there will always be a neighbor and no matter how big your property is right it will always abut to someone else's so that's yeah, I really like the I I really like the story too, and I like the way that it um, the way that it sort of wraps up with that collective we in a kind of um, uh, well uh, pulling together money for a funeral, right? Um, but then also like describing describing the details of the wake mm-hmm. that collective endeavor. I I don't know. I just really like the I like the prose and the way that um the way that Washington uses almost with a poet's ear a kind of parallel structure in his sentences um to create this really interesting like cascading rhythm of description at times. It's very lyrical. It's a very beautiful story to listen to and read and engage with. So Jess, I want to hear about your favorite stories in a second, but I want to ask both of you because both of you listened to this book. What was that like? What was that experience like? So I, I said earlier that there was a part of it that was published, that was really a novella published in several parts because every other story follows one family. And um, with the narrators of the book, each story kind of has its own narrator, but these stories that are connected for the most part, have the same narrator. So I think listening to it, I was able to immediately pick up on, oh, this is the same kind of characters. We're going back to who we just heard from a little while ago. And I might not have picked up on that as easily if I'd read it, because um, we don't know the main character's name telling these stories until the end. So they, we don't really have the names to ground the story as easily as you normally do when you know all the characters' names. So that was just very immediately known to me that oh these are the same characters that we just saw two stories ago reading or reading the audiobook for me was a really great experience because I I grew up in a very urban city I grew up in Atlantic City which is um, in southern New Jersey People get sick of me talking about New Jersey and how great it is because no one it's believes not. that it's great. Everyone thinks it's horrible. See, exactly. But it's great clear tomatoes that never and blueberries there. Great, yeah, Jersey fresh forever. Great veggies. It's great soil. It's the Garden State. Is, yeah, Carmen is looking at me like I'm insane, but it is great soil. There's nothing. Yeah. I guess we can give New Jersey <laughs> that it you. has good dirt. Um, it's a good dirt. But state. <laughs> regardless of how anyone else feels about it, um, 
Atlantic City has an enormous Latinx population, and the neighborhood that I lived in in particular had a very large Latinx population. And kind of as you traveled north on the island, it um, it became more black, essentially. So you would have the black communities that were further north, and then as you trickled south on the island, there were... Um, primarily East Asian and Central Asian communities there. We had a lot of people who were immigrants from Bangladesh um, and India as we had a huge um, Thai and Filipino population. But my neighborhood primarily was very proud Puerto Ricans and very proud Dominican Republicans. And like every year we would be celebrating like, um, is it Puerto Rican Independence Day or there's a, I forget what the day is. It's been a while since I've been home to celebrate it. But every year, all of the flags were out. Everyone had them on their cars, honking horns. It was such a great day. But there, there are just like lines in this book that would just take me right back to home. And Joseph, we talked about this this morning. There's a line that talks about like the restaurant had been closed, but you could still smell the oil in the air. And it just took me straight back to like the Puerto Rican restaurant on Ventnor Avenue that I would walk by on my way home. And you could tell like what they were cooking based on how the oil smelled. And there are just so many, so many little tidbits in there that made me think of home and where I grew up. That was just such a treat for me because there isn't a lot of fiction that I read that kind of grasps that as well as this book did. And that was wonderful for me. I loved it. Yeah. Yeah, there, you know, there's snippets of things that for some people is like creating a sense of place, but then for me it was like taking me back to that sense of place that I've always known yeah. and grew up with. I really like the and I really like the idea of of um sort of getting situated in the book by uh different um, narrative nar- or narrator performers like grounding you in that single in one voice and then you get a different voice and then you know um, that gives you a different uh, again that sense of intimacy but also that larger yeah. wider sense of place yes it really helps you move through the stories and you know listening to the audiobook it really embraces that conversational tone that we were talking about earlier and it really makes you feel like you're listening to your friend again on the sitting on the porch listening to them talk smack about someone else or something like that I always like it when I can recommend a book as when I can recommend a book as the book it's a book book physical book but also like the audiobook as a distinctive work of art as well like as as the book as an as an experience and I've had a I've had a few books that I've read over the last year or so that have been like that where I will actually be listening to it but I'll also have a book copy check checked out so if I can't listen to it I can kind of dip back in and whatever and kind of get that split experience and it's actually pretty enjoyable um so Jess what were your what what, what was your favorite story Um, My favorite story was probably the shortest story in the book, which is Peggy Park. (laughs) Um, Peggy Park is about the the group of kids who play baseball in the neighborhood. And you always you always know that school is out because you can hear the absolute calamity at the baseball field because they're all running and screaming and getting ready to play. And it's very, very short and it's very 
it's got a quick pace to it too. It feels frenetic in the way that baseball is frenetic and it does a great job of kind of, kind of grabbing what's so interesting about sports in general, which is that kind of high energy vibe, that really thriller moment. But then also kind of looking at where these dudes end up after they're no longer playing baseball. And there's only one who really makes it out into the world and ends up in the big leagues. And the rest of them are, you know, running a restaurant or I think one of them says that like, he used to beat kids up, but now he's a gardener, <laughs> which is just like such a great little detail because we all know someone like that who is like a real annoying punk in middle school and high school, but now he's like this super zen hippie <laughs> or something like that. It's interesting to read stories like that and then think about your own life and think about how your childhood impacted who you are now and did it actually impact you or did it just for some of the kids that played baseball, they their stories as adults are, oh, yeah, I played baseball when I was a kid, period. And then there's the one guy that does become an actual professional player, and so he says, I've always loved baseball. And so that was a very integral part of his growing up, but it wasn't as integral to some of the others. So it's really interesting to think about parts of your own childhood that were integral to who you are as an adult and other parts of things that were just things you just did because they were there. Right. Yeah. Sort of a resting place for you at this point in your life. And and perhaps it was a um, this is one this is one action in a given night in a given week. And there's we even get a sense of that, like in the opening of the of that um, story that you might do. And it, it catches you for a period of time. But then there's this like momentum that sends you off elsewhere. Um, yeah. This story is really marvelous. Um, because. Yeah, and just electrons pinging off each other, basically all these kids. And there's the the final moment of energy is this one kid who ends up going pro. He falls down and the other guys all rush to kind of push him back up. And then the final lines are, um, he carried us through the water and the mud all the way back home. And that might be why he's the one playing in Brooklyn and Boston and Pittsburgh and Dallas and Tucson and Cleveland and Oakland. But when you watch him on ESPN or Fox Sports Southwest or Telemundo 40 or wherever the fuck, then we're right there with him, holding him up, pushing him toward wherever we're headed next. So there's still this, like I'm getting like little chills thinking about it because it's so good and then you you get hit at the very end with wherever we're headed next it's not just him he's got the whole community behind him supporting him in the process even if he's gone on his way and he's doing his own thing these guys still have that shared experience with him and they're always going to be there watching it and considering it a victory of their own when he does well yeah, it's this amazing. Uh, it, it, it's an amazing illustration, I think, of what sports are for people, <laughs> like wh- how sp- how it feels to play a sport, watch a sport, care about the performance of that on any on any sort of level. And in this case, it's this sort of intimate neighborhood, pocket park, small scale level. But also, also, there's this momentum. And I think again, just to to take it back to the sort of grammatical piece. I mean, there's a, the way that he constructs sentences in that story alone, just as these like accumulations of phrases 
comma, 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 here we go. Like attach, attach all of these things together into a single phrase um, or into a single sentence. Um, and, and it creates this, it creates this really generative, really generative rhythm. That story made love me it. think of all the people in Spartanburg that don't follow sports but love Zion Williamson. Oh and yeah, like, he's yes. ours. He's part of us, <laughs> and we follow him. And it's people that yeah. don't aren't interested in sports. Certainly uh-huh. weren't interested in high school basketball when he sort of started to rock it to. And start especially him. not at the Spartanburg Day School. Yes, <laughs> like, but no. then people watch the new PlayStation Five game coming out, and they're like, oh, "It's Zion Williamson." Like we all know him personally. Right. <laughs> yeah, right. we have this personal connection to him because coming from Spartanburg, everyone has a very. A t- big attachment to that sport, even if they're not into sports, and that sort of was the theme mm. of the story too. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, place becomes this thing that sort of travels through these uh, athletic avatars yeah. almost. And I think that's a great way to pivot to our other book, which is Sports is Hell by Ben Passmore. And this is, I would. I would call it, I called it in the intro, a graphic novella because it's very short. It's right. like a, a little, I don't know, like you grab a handful of dirt and that's your story. Um, but this, this, <laughs> this book has, I think, a maybe slightly different or maybe deeper or like it's on a different plane maybe for me than for either of you because it, its starting point is with the Philadelphia Eagles and their Super Bowl run. And right. I am a, like I said earlier, from South Jersey. I am a born and bred from day one. Came out bleeding green Philadelphia Eagles fan. I was at the Super Bowl parade after they won. I was go on birds. the real go birds forever. <laughs> um, I'll go like I'll have go birds on my headstone with a little Eagles <laughs> Eagles logo. Fly Eagles fly. Yeah, fly Eagles fly. I. I am an enormous Eagles fan, and so reading this, Ben Passmore lives in Philadelphia, and of course, it makes sense that he would choose Philadelphia, and I think when I look at the NFL and I look at the other 31 teams, this is the only place that this book could have taken place and have it make sense because of the race relations particular to Philadelphia and the situations that the city has been through, and... I mean, who's who's won the Super Bowl since then? The Patriots. Um, and <laughs> and this kind of thing wouldn't happen in Boston because Boston has a really honestly repressive system in place to stop any sort of right. rioting. And frankly, Boston can be a pretty racist city. Um, it has historically it has a past of being maybe even more strongly racist than other cities do. And Philadelphia has over over the last multiple decades had to reckon with a lot of a lot of harm put in place particularly by Frank Rizzo who was their longtime mayor and supported some very very oppressive um, behaviors by the police in Philadelphia that are now there's an effort to undo there's been an effort to undo what he did for a long time but now it's really really gaining traction with everything that's going on with the black lives matter movement and the support of that um after the death of george floyd and so to give context to that philadelphia in particular is an interesting place to have this book or have this story because of the combination of the eagles 
plus the history that Philadelphia has had with Frank Rizzo. And I loved it. I I could talk about the Eagles anytime, but to especially like put drop the Eagles um, as the catalyst for the violence that takes place in this book brings an additional depth to it. And as a graphic novel, it's, it's a treat to look at visually. Ben Passmore has such a unique illustration style and uh, he, you know, he knows his stuff. He's, he lives in Philadelphia. So it, again, this was another like strong sense of right. place. Felt like I was home yeah. in a way. Yeah, it's really informed. Is, it's really clearly informed yeah. by that. Um, even though yes. the, um, even though the structure and the focus is, is sort of targeted um, around, around the, the football team and around their win and the riots and um, other things that sort of follow from that. I will say in the book, they're not actually referenced as the Philadelphia Eagles. They're the birds, quote unquote, but There's everyone probably knows legal what reasons means. why he had to do that. Yeah. There, yes, I'm sure he, there would have been a real, uh, real kerfuffle with the NFL and their trademark and all of that if they wanted to yeah. do that. Well, I would think with graphic novels, it's a good starting point to talk about the art. And Ben Passamore uses a very limited color palette in this and just thinking about how that impacts the story because the colors that he uses are the white page, black ink, and a a soft peach color. But this isn't a soft story. And so often peach is such a soft, light color. It's almost feminine in a way. Yeah. And this is a story that is, it's not a traditionally feminine story. It's more of a traditionally masculine story. And there's a lot of um, violence happening in the story. So it was a really interesting choice to use such a soft color palette. Yeah, it it does something to balance it. And almost in a way, it really highlights, like even on the cover, you look at it and you see there's a football player rising from this pile of just disaster at his feet and his body is almost entirely black and the highlights on his helmet are this peach color and just white and so it creates a very stark image in a way i really like passmore's work i've read a couple of other um books that he has done one uh, is a collection of zines uh, that's now bound together called your black friend and other strangers and the other book that I've read uh, by him that was actually a collaboration between him and Ezra Clayton McDaniels is called Bottom Feeders. And in that book in particular, I've, it's been a little longer since I've read Your Black Friend and Other Strangers, so I can't recall the color palette techniques there. But in Bottom Feeders, there's a similar there's a similar approach where we almost have this like one one or two other colors in addition to the sort of white page and these strong like black ink lines um used to used to create this sense of this sense of contrast and at in in moments perhaps tenderness and and at and then in other moments to create sense of a sense of tension a sense of violence and or the potential for everything to kind of bubble up and and get really wild but Passmore's perspective is an interesting one, I think, in graphic fiction because it is it is so distinctive and it is um, it is such a contemporary one in that he is working from 
from within a black radical tradition and in particular a a, a sort of anarchist post-occupy kind of anarchist position um, that's interested in the possibility of autonomous zones uh, kind of emerging within the contemporary state um, and the and and the real potential for um, for riots and uprisings um, to create some some sense of the new and some sense of what might be possible and that absolutely comes through here but but I, I you know I don't see a lot of a lot of perspectives like that necessarily reflected in the like in the graphic novel scene as published perhaps online perhaps in sort of smaller press zine spaces and stuff yeah the the graphic novel community at large is about as slow to change and slow to embrace new new creative perspectives as fiction is but where where it feels like graphic novels and comics are perhaps a little bit slower is that you're not just writing a story, you're also illustrating it. So having to be able to have people who are available to do both of those things or find two people who work well enough together to portray those stories can be very hard. And Ben Passmore is able to do that so incredibly well, which is such a feat. And I hope that what he's done and the skill that he's had and bottom feeders has been nominated for an Eisner award this year, which is fantastic and kind of elevates him. Right. Yeah. Um, and hopefully that means that he is kind of leading the way for a number of other black creators, especially when it comes to graphic novels, because these stories need to be told. And it's so, um, this came out in March of this year and sports as hell came out in March. And if, if I had known I buy the graphic novels for the system and if I had known what was going to happen over the, the following four to five months, I would have bought us 10 copies and I might still, and I might say this needs to go on any black lives matter display that we have because it is so, it is so clear. Ben Passmore does such a very clear job of explaining what happens in a protest like this that becomes violent and what happens with an outside agitator who comes in here who is a white supremacist and he becomes the actual problem, but other people have to pay for what he's done. And that's... Yeah, essentially. I mean, he's also certainly writing the past because we've seen this happen over and over and over again. But now, finally, we've got a lot of people who are listening. So this is a great time to, you know, press this book into everyone's hands and say, read this. It's very short. It's pretty easy to follow. And it's going to help you understand what's happening from the perspective of the people who are there as opposed to from the perspective of the news anchors who weren't there, who were in their studios or at home when this happened. I think that's a really great point. And I think that, um, I think that something about Passmore's perspective, his sort of political, political orientation, but also perhaps his, his background, artistic background of working in self-publishing, working in zines as a, as a way of, sharing the news and circulating 
the reality of what really is on the ground that's another it's another mode of of a kind of new media that challenges that challenges the news packages that would otherwise tell the story of tell the story of a protest and whether they decide to call it a riot or whether they decide to call it an uprising and the politics of that right right there's also a very polished output from a news studio from any sort of established media be it a newspaper or a website or cnn or whatever we see on tv whereas with a graphic novel it's not necessarily as polished pristine you know kind of it's able to be more accurate to the way the movement is happening because Passmore is able to capture the nuance of protests and riots and the nuance is often ignored in the reporting by major news outlets just as a way to present something that's easily digestible. And Passmore isn't trying to present this as something that's easy to digest, too easy to digest. It's meant to be something that's difficult to understand and hard to follow and really difficult to know everyone's place because that's how movements are in general. They're not prettily packaged things in little boxes that you can easily understand. Right. And in that way, it's super similar to Lot because we're given kind of that shorthand, that nuance, that first person kind of interaction because, yeah, the insider view, because just like with a leaf, you're part of the we in this case. You're part of the group of protesters who are looking for this football player who's gone missing. And also just like in a leaf, as soon as someone else gets hold of the story, it changes. Right. So as soon as someone else gets hold of the story of Insider the view, protest, yeah. it starts to change and shift. And that's how it ends up ultimately getting on the news is it's changed and has shifted from person to person to person to person before it ultimately reaches like mass media level. And even he even critiques mass media coverage of it with the talking head of the um sports logos talking about what's going on and there the commentators are talking about the riots as a way as if they're talking about a football game and ignoring a lot of the nuance of it and just focusing on the excitement from a distance of it as opposed to focusing on what's happening at the ground level which is what Passmore wants us to see yeah um and that's that's such a great point about sports commentators in particular and (laughs) Again, I'm a super fan of the Philadelphia Eagles, so I, <laughs> I, um, I do, actually. Um, but I, I may or may not have a bootleg copy of the Eagles Super Bowl on my computer with, with the commentators from Philadelphia, um, Marilyn Ike. And they are both longtime Eagles commentators. Merrill's been doing it, I think, since the 80s or the 70s. Maybe he's been calling games as a play-by-play. And Ike's been doing it, I don't know, 15 or 20 years since before I moved here. And it's, it's so incredible to me to go back and watch that version of the game with the local commentators dubbed over it as opposed to the national commentators and what the clear differences in perspective and I personally felt doing my best to kind of back away from it and listen to it from just like 
a disinterested third party because I did that at one point. I listened to it as like just someone watching the game without any skin in it at all. I felt that Marilyn Ike's commentary and their their calling of the game was less biased than that of Alan Chris on NBC. And it seemed clear to me that they they were kind of pulling for the the Patriots dynasty, Tom Brady getting the most rings for the Patriots ever and doing better than Pittsburgh. So even when you're watching something as seemingly innocuous, quote unquote, as sports, there is still this bias there and there's still this turn of, um, you know, someone may call a play like rough but fair and the other one may say that that was um, unconscionable and should never be done again and the player should be kicked out. And as you know, it's as soon as it comes away from the actual act, it's changed. And Ben Passmore does a really good job of actually embracing that with the commentators, the talking logos to kind of explain where that, that kind of push and shove comes to play. Because I think at one point the commentators even can't agree on what's happened on the field. So that's, that's very realistic to me. And I think a lot of people don't think about sports quite that critically, but it it's very important to do because that is, once you start thinking about that critically, it allows you to think about other things that you hear secondhand or from a different source more critically as well. Sure. And I think there's a way, there's a way too, in which the, the sports media narrative framework, let's call it, um, still assumes a kind of a kind of character and motivation um, and ability based storytelling particular players have particular abilities and particular teams have particular narratives where they sort of serve as a they have backstory they serve as sort of proxies or something like that and um right right and and there's a way in which that kind of storytelling is absolutely hilariously insufficient for talking about something as complex and dynamic as a protest as a social movement right where where yeah there may be there may be leaders perhaps but so many of these so many of these uprisings that we have seen um since uh, the beginnings of the the Black Lives Matter movement to now are in some ways perhaps leaderless or they are um, they're organized they're organized from below not from some kind of top down someone is giving direction and that sort of thing although there are um, uh, you know conspiracy minded folks who want to believe that that is the case they want to impose that character based story onto things but i think that like one of the things that um one of the things that passmore is able to do so well again because of his perspective and because of where he's sort of the the vantage point from which he is working is is to give us that sense of that dynamic event and and i think the inclusion like you're saying the inclusion of those sports commentators shows the insufficiency of that narrative and and how really like yeah maybe we're grounded and we follow characters for a while but but we're situated in this event as it unfolds and as it kind of is this emergent changing thing and carmen you know, to go back to what you said about um the commentators like 
not addressing what's happening on the field or what's happening out in real life and just, you know, stick to sports or whatever. Um, there's a great documentary that I will never not bring up if I can find a way to wedge it into discussion. And it's an ESPN 30 for 30 film and it's called June 17th, 1994. I think that's the date. I might have gotten it wrong. I hope I didn't. Uh, I think it's the 17th, but it takes place on the day of, yes, it's June 17th, 1994. It takes place on the day of the infamous white Bronco chase with OJ Simpson. But what, you know, that day is kind of etched into the memory of America in a certain way. Uh, But what a lot of people forget is that there were actual enormous sporting events going on at the same time. The first match of the World Cup was being played in Chicago that day. Arnold Palmer's last round as a professional golfer was being played for the U.S. Open. Um, Game four, I want to say, of the NBA Finals was happening. There was something else big that was going on as well. Oh, baseball. They were um, Jackie no, not Jackie Robinson. Who was it? There was a baseball player who was working on a um, home run streak, I believe. There were like half a dozen other things happening in sports. And the only one that was in the off season at the time, which was football, was getting all of the media coverage. The Stanley Cup finals had been won and they were ha- um, the New York Rangers had won and they were having their ticker tape parade in New York City that day as well. Like everything was happening in sports that day, but it was all overwhelmed by O.J. Simpson. And what's great about the documentary is that it's all primary footage of clips of all of these different sports events that are happening bill clinton like kicking off the world cup in chicago um you're seeing the confetti falling from new york city and then there are clips of the white bronco going down the the whatever road it is in la i've never been there 405 maybe (laughs) something like that um but it's you know going along at like 32 miles per hour or however fast that bronco was moving And it's interspersed also with clips of commentators off air saying, how do we address it? How do we address what's going on with O.J. Simpson right now? Because they're cutting in and out to show clips of the ongoing chase. And the commentators want to know what they can say, how they can say it, if they can say anything at all. And there's one really great clip of um, Chris Berman young Chris Berman and he was calling the U.S. Open that day with Arnold Palmer and he's like just tell me what I can say and it's very interesting to see that perspective because we don't think about them as people who who are ever like flapped in any way they're unflappable you know these people who do the news they have to be unflappable the kinds of atrocities they have to cover with a straight face is incredible and then you see them flap and you're like, oh my God, this is kind of a big deal. And that was like a sports moment that impacted this entire country going forward for, I mean, decades, really. It's something that anyone who's alive and has a memory long enough will remember that moment probably forever. So this is, you know, it ties into that so very well to combine those two even um, just as a sports nerd, <laughs> you know, to have that perspective because we never see behind the scenes of commentators and what they want, how they want to be able to link sports to a greater 
part of the world and um we've seen it with commentators before bob costas once did uh, what nbc considered a relatively abrasive commentary during halftime of an nfl game about black lives and what was happening in the country and he was pulled from coverage for the next couple of weeks because of it because it was too too much for network tv we had i really like what you said earlier joseph about identity avatars or athletic avatars yes and that becoming a part of it and when sports or any kind of hobby type thing from sports to popular culture to even crafting type hobbies, when that is a part of our identity and identities are being impacted by world events, there's no way to be able to say, well, we need to keep sports just about sports because there's all these other overlapping identities that are impacted by what's going on and are therefore impacted by the sports as well as current events and pop culture. So O.J. Simpson and then everything happening in sports as hell, it's just a perfect example of the overlaying facets of a personality and how sports is one part of it but you have to address all of the parts of it yeah saying stick to sports negates someone's race gender identity their crafts their hobbies their passions and just boils them down essentially into basically a robot who plays a game with a ball and that's that's incredibly unfair to all of these men and women who work so hard, but they have identities outside of this and they can't play sports forever. They're incapable of doing that for the rest of their lives. So something has to come after that. And by highlighting the player before the person, that's part of where humanity can be lost in sports. Right. But even to, but even to take it back to lot and perhaps even just to take it back to Spartanburg County in general, right? You, (laughs) If you, if you play sports and you're from a place, because everyone's from a place, everyone's from somewhere, and, and that place still thinks of you and, is, and, and attaches itself to you and the sort of the trajectory of your, of your career, you can see how immediately it is impossible to merely sp- stick to sports because you're from a place that has a history, that has a politics that's complicated, that shaped your your identity in a particular way and makes it possible for people there to relate to you, to care about your success, to, to see you in any form. Exactly. Exactly. Right. Yeah. 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 And so, and so that, that aspect is really like so many things, right? If, if you, if you merely sat and reflected on, reflected on the cliche, um, and the, the sort of defensive stance from which that, that kind of argument stick to sports, where that comes from, shut up and dribble, right? That's another one. Um, if you sit with that and you reflect on it for just a minute, you see how quickly it falls apart, um, which is always good to do. So. I, as a byproduct of my training in sort of the literary field and literary classroom, I can't help but think about art, at least on some level, as, um, as an effort at solving a kind of problem, solving a problem for the imagination, making certain things thinkable for us. And at least for me, 
I think that Lot and Sports as Hell on one level are are doing that or attempting that. And I think Sports as Hell as we're talking about it, um, it's it's trying to solve the problem in graphic storytelling of how do you tell the story of an uprising, right? How do you tell the story of a protest um, and what it grows out of, but also what becomes part of it. And Lot, in some ways, how do you tell the story of a place? How do you tell the story of a place in a moment, like in this transition? You know, not right. Yeah, it's 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 constant. It's serial, right? It's um, it's it's sequential and it's rooted in its moment. But we don't get like the deep history of of Houston. That would be a very different book, and that would and that wouldn't necessarily allow us to be so grounded in the intimacy of these stories. And so that's. I don't know. I, I I come back to that, and I see, I see a way in which these these books are related, not merely around not merely around their sort of dense grounding in place, but also in the kind of like I said, the problems for the imagination that they're addressing, that they're trying to solve and make available for us as readers. So I wonder if there's like, I don't know, other other closing thoughts that either of you had about one or both that that you might you might draw together now that we've sort of talked them through a little bit well there's something we haven't gotten to talk much about with sports as hell and it's sort of a connection to lot where with lot we talked about the um, presence of white characters and how they're addressed throughout lot and how that shifts and that happens in sports as hell as well with molly and i think her boyfriend's name was jason so it, Molly and Jason are the white characters that sort of become a, an amalgam of people, white people out of Black Lives Matter movement or any kind of social political movement that are there because they want to be in the thick of something and rather than because they want to be a part of change. And there's so much of their stuff that goes back to the saviorship and fixing other people's problems that we talked about with Lot. Yeah because they're like, I'm gonna solve this. I know what the problem is. And all the black people are around them are like, what are you talking about? Like, what are you doing here? And so there's the different parts of that. And there was one funny moment in the story where um, all the characters are kind of holed up in a, a store or something like that. And one of the more militant black um, groups comes into the store and sees Molly and Jason with the Black Lives Matter type protesters. And they say to the black protesters, the militant protesters say to the other black protesters, are these your Europeans? And it was such a funny moment that sort of highlights that Molly and Jason are trying to be a part of something, but they're still on the outside of this thing. And they're sort of in it for the wrong reasons. And so much of the story as from Molly's perspective, centers on her grief and her trauma. And the other characters are like, we've been dealing with this for way longer, our whole lives. You've only been dealing with this for like an hour, sis. Like, and it's just, really, um, it's just a really powerful depiction for Passmore to just show that kind of, um, it made me think of Martin Luther King's um, quote about the white moderate because Molly and her boyfriend do represent the white moderate. And um, I wrote down that Martin Luther King quote, where it basically says, I have almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's greatest stumbling block in his stride toward freedom is the white moderate who is more devoted to order than justice, who who prefers 
a negative peace, which is the absence of, of um, tension, to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice. And that um, it's just something that was very, very political in an already political story for Ben Passmore to call these kind of people out, because that's something that it's something that would have driven away a lot of white viewers and readers, I think. But he just um, attacks that head on without worrying about how he's going to be critiqued for it. Yeah, and he he drops it deep enough in a short story that if you've already read up to that point, you're going to commit to keep going. And if it's something that gives you pause, maybe you need to reflect on that. <laughs> and so even with his even with his emphasis on a kind of inclusion and putting you in the scene, putting you in this dynamic event, there's still tension. And this and this really interesting working out of a kind of of a kind of critique, an internal critique almost. I just really liked both of them. <laughs> yeah, they they both give me an opportunity to access memories of my growing up and my childhood and my life before I moved to South Carolina, and that is never something that I'll turn away from. So to be able to read both of these, especially in comparison with each other is a real treat. I like stories that sort of make you think more about your life and your place or your memories as opposed to it just being a story that just happened. Yeah, I think we all maybe get a little bit more out of reading when there's something that ties us to what's happening in the story in some way. And what's and what's often the most successful is a story or are those stories that that allow us that kind of deeper access into our own experiences, but at the same time put us out into the world through through these other perspectives that we feel like we have some kind of insight into, even still in this fictional form, even still in this sort of limited this this limited capacity and representation, right? We learn more about ourselves by learning more about others. It's like it's that sort of interesting, complex, ethical, empathetic circle. Right. Even when you're anchored by something like a sense of place or your favorite sports team <laughs> or or a hobby that a character might have that you share, there's still so much else that's different about it that you're going to still learn a lot, but you feel like you feel like you're locked in with some sort of truth that you and the character both share, perhaps. And that's always very beneficial as a book is guiding you through this world. A book and an author. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> it's not really the book. It's the author who does right. it. <laughs> right. 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 Um, well, that's really great. I, um, I really enjoyed this conversation and um, want to thank Carmenita for joining us uh, to Baby's talk about first these, podcast. these two books. <laughs> thank you for having me. I really enjoyed being a part of this. And we already have a plan to um, to have her on a future episode. TB we'll do it again sometime. TBD um, <laughs> very soon. Uh, but thanks to you all for, for listening. Um, and please uh, remember to subscribe now to our podcast, which is officially uh, right. available in subscribe. all the places where, where good podcasts are found, um, whether you're on an Apple device or an Android device. Um, and uh, we look forward to uh, making our next episode for you. All right. Bye.
Please sing the song. Please sing the song. Sing the song. Do it. Do it. Do it. Fly, eagles, fly on the road to victory. <laughs> fight, eagles, fight. Score a touchdown. <laughs> One, two, three. Hit him low. Hit him high. And we'll watch our eagles fly. Fly, eagles, fly. <laughs> On the road to victory. And then here's the best part. We do it together. E-A-G-L-E-S, Eagles. And that's after every touchdown, home or away. That's <laughs> no great. No matter what. That's great. I have sung that at oh the AV goodness. desk before when I've been watching the game cast on the computer while I work on a Sunday. It's perfect. 